Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. All right. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Church and Culture Podcast. If this is your first time listening, let me introduce really quickly the voices you'll be hearing, or if you're checking us out on YouTube, the people you'll be watching. Um, I'm Alexis, and I am joined by Dr. James Emery White. He is an author, a pastor, and president of a ministry called Serious Times, which um, studies the intersection of church with the Christian faith and which hosts this podcast. So recently off the podcast, um, Jim and I were discussing really the much needed practice of developing a Christian worldview, as opposed to um, just tackling individual topics or issues as they come, Um, that the Christian life really does provide a framework for morality that helps Christians navigate changes in culture, especially when a lot of the specific issues that we're facing aren't directly mentioned in the Bible. And one such area in which we're talking about how this is really helpful is with regards to the balance between morality, Christian morality, and legislation. So for example, when Christians feel really passionately about something related to Christian morality, how much should we seek to pursue um, or to legislate biblical principles? You know, specifically, I'm thinking about how this might play into topics such as abortion or bioethics or gun control, vaccination, same-sex marriage. I could go on and on. So we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, And then we're also going to talk about how Christian how one, at one point in history, we found us found it a little bit easier to create legislation that upheld Christian principles, but increasingly more refining ourselves on the opposite end of um, legis- legislation that is more hostile to Christianity. So we're going to talk about how we might respond to that. So um, to get started, Jim, would you maybe start us off by coaching us on how when we come across, for example, a headline that um, talks about a piece of legislation that seems to not be in accordance with a Christian value, how we should think beyond that immediate story to more of a, a larger Christian worldview. Yeah, uh, and I think that you phrase it perfectly because what you just said is the answer. <laughs> you have to look at it through a larger Christian worldview and through a larger lens to really ascertain what it is you're dealing with here as a Christian and how to think Christianly about it. Let's begin by stating something that I hope is obvious. When people say, you know, you can't legislate morality, that's all legislation is. I mean, that's all it is. You know, a law is a legislated moral. It is a guideline. And so all laws are legislated moralities. Just a question of what, who's morality, uh, who's moral, what basis. And so for a Christian, whenever you see any kind of story or reading anything, you have to ask yourself, um, okay, where does this come into uh, tension with uh, scripture? And that's the basis of a Christian worldview is scripture and what has been revealed to us about what is moral, what is right, what is wrong, the way it's supposed to be, a sense of due north. And, and you know, how can you tell a line is crooked unless you know what a straight line is, as C.S. Lewis once famously said. And so you see whether something's crooked based on the, uh, the basis of the straight line you have in your hand. And so that's how you begin to tell the difference between the two. What's really key, I think, is when you were saying that all legislation is moral in nature, but I think the big difference of what we're trying to get at with a Christian worldview is that secular culture would suggest that morality changes or it evolves or it's what's moral now or in this certain case, but you're saying with a Christian worldview, it, it, it it's not like the God never changes and his standard for morality never changes. Um, the way in which we may need, may need to apply it may look different, but it is constant. Is that a fair? Yes, like, that, 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 and that's, that's the big divide between with decision-making and, and, and laws and rules is that it, if you're, if you're, if you're making decisions based on raw majority rule, 
51%. But what 51% in culture want to be moral, right, true at any given point in time, which is simplistically, but, but that's where we're at because nobody's looking to something transcendent outside of themselves. Um, the closest thing we have is the Supreme Court, but it's looking to make its decisions based on, on, on laws that have already been established. Precedent is largely what they're looking for. Are we staying in context with the constitution? And so they are looking to something, the constitution, but that's the closest thing we really have um, when Senate passes a bill or makes a decision or, or the House of Representatives, they're looking at what their constituency wants, what they feel like people want, what's going to get them reelected. They're not looking at what does the Bible say, what does what truth, what has truth that has been revealed to us that is transcendent. They're not looking to that kind of a truth source or that kind of a foundation for uh, laws. They're they're pragmatists, you know, what works. Um, they are uh, trying to be um, populists, you know, what what is going to get me reelected and what do people want. And so they're constantly kind of putting their finger in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, and then they're going to play along those lines. And so that's how something like gay marriage, which was denounced even as recently as by Obama in his first administration, um, is now uh, like the gold standard of what everybody is supposed to uphold and what is now legal. And so it moves that quickly because of just cultural opinion. And so that's that's really the basis. So you have two radically different bases for moving forward and evaluating things. Yeah. And I mean, where this work is really difficult, right, is that that popular opinion, which is increasingly becoming less and less um, consistent with Christian with the Christian worldview is the loudest opinion, right? Like it's it is what's predominantly out there trying to shape us. Um, yeah. And I, I'll go further. Uh, and then I don't want to get too afield from where you're wanting to steer the conversation. But um, even when the overwhelming majority were against something, a vocal minority that holds the right influencer patterns can get the majority shifted. So, for example, again, with um, I, I think that it's it's a it's a the clearest cultural example is where we have changed our thinking on all things with homoerotic behavior, and that is that um, the epicenters of culture and largely the um, the media um, really began to go on something of a cultural mission to normalize things. Mm. And so it was before, whereas maybe people would have been aghast at homosexual lifestyle. Uh, all we have to do is give them a really well done sitcom like we did with Ellen mm. or something with Will and Grace and all of a sudden things change. And so, uh, and so the way, so it can be a minority but has wide influence can shape the majority into it. So mm. you have to be kind of watching both. Right. Well, and another layer to this, I think, is what kind of how a Christian would, would respond is that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the Bible, but the Bible doesn't talk about these specific issues. It doesn't talk about, you know, same-sex marriage, it doesn't talk about bioethics, it doesn't talk about, you know, the relationship that we have with artificial well, intelligence. It doesn't speak to yeah, these things. Um, yeah, let me, <laughs> let me interject <laughs> a little bit there. Um, like when you say it doesn't talk about gay marriage, yes, it does, because it talks about uh, homosexuality throughout the pages, Old Testament and New Testament. So it does. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence, it, it may not mention the words artificial intelligence, but you have the doctrine of humanity in scripture. And we know what it means to be human and uh, to be made in the image of God. And we know what isn't human based on that. So while some of these specific topics by name aren't in scripture, the way to think about them and engage them is in scripture. And so uh, there's, there's, there's really nothing we can't think Christianly about. Uh, even bioethics, because again, you have uh, various things like when does 
you know, the, the sanctity of human life and, and, and the nature of what it means to be male and female. And, and all of these things play into all of these issues. And we'll have to do some fresh creative application. Hmm. But um, the foundation of thinking is, is there for us. Right. And that's what kind of reinforces this whole idea of a Christian worldview that's shaped by not just going into your Bible and looking up the word, you know, artificial intelligence, because you're not going to find that there, but really seeking to understand the heart and the character of God and how he's revealed himself throughout history to be able to inform some of these things that the Bible doesn't talk specifically about. But the Bible does, you know, maybe it's not going to talk specifically about I don't know, um, whatever the issue might be, but it does talk a lot about the relationship between the church and those in authority, specifically within the Bible when, when those two are at odds. Um, and so what are some important examples of this throughout the Bible that maybe Christians should be familiar with as, a, a, a something to learn from three come to mind. Uh, one is the, 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 when the religious leaders were trying to trick Jesus and trap him, which they are always trying to trap him to where, you know, there's no way, whatever answer he gives, he's, he's trapped. They were always after those kinds of questions. So for example, uh, what comes to mind is when they, they, um, about taxes, should we, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? And if he said yes, then there'd be people that would say he's pro-Rome. And if he says no, then they would turn him into Rome and say, see, he's, he's, uh, um, a political subversive. There was no way for him to win. But instead, he takes the coin and he looks at it and on it is the head of Caesar. And he simply says, well, you know, give to Caesar what's his. Since it's his, give it to him, you know, and it kind of diffused the whole thing. And he was not trying to be either for insurrection or to affirm Rome. He pulled back from that and because he never he didn't want to get involved in those politics. In fact, when, you know, he just said, you know, hey, look, if, if my kingdoms of this world, I'd already have called the angels down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so he, he rose above that. But he also did make it clear, you know, yeah, give to Caesar with Caesar's pay the taxes. Much more specifically, you have Romans 13, where Paul gives a massive essay on the role of the Christian in government and roots it in creation, roots it in the authority of, of things, the authority of, that exists in the home, authority that exists in the church, and authority that exists in government. And with all three, Paul says it is authority derived from God. And so you're treated with respect. And you are to pray for your leaders and you're to submit to your leaders. And when, before people say, oh, but you know, what about a bad leader? Do you know who was in charge when Paul wrote that? Uh, a man named Nero, <laughs> the most evil dictator ever, maybe. Many look, thought he was the Antichrist. And so Paul says human authority is derived from God's authority, and you're to submit to it and obey to it. Why? Because of law, because of order, and all of these different kinds of things. Um, and then, um, and, uh, but, but then you also have that, that line in Acts where they commanded... Uh, some of the apostles not to worship or pray or to testify to Jesus. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So that's kind of the third thing. So how does that play into it? And, and I've always liked the way John Stott said this. He says, um, the, when, you, when you pull that out, I must obey God rather than men. It's when they are commanding what God forbids, or they are forbidding what God commands. Um, outside of that, where you have to say, I must obey God rather than men. Outside of that, where to submit? Mm. So, but but if you look at biblical examples, like you mentioned um, in your first one, even Jesus, 
Jesus and specifically even Paul too, have really been criticized for not taking firmer stances, like on pretty egregious legislation of the day, like um, particularly involving slavery and women's rights. And so how might you respond to that? Like, are they just then kind of giving us a blueprint of you just let legislation be what it is and you just submit to it? Or do we, you know, try to figure out, aren't we called to be salt and light? Like, aren't we supposed to try to, to make it a different way? Yeah, I think those are those are really good questions, and it takes it's it's there's not a soundbite answer. So let me give you more than a soundbite, which is the beauty of a of a podcast. Um, the Christian movement carried the seeds for the abolition of slavery and the liberation of women. It carried all of the seeds. It was the Christian faith that really led to uh, both the emancipation of women and and the ending of slavery. Um, and so uh, another thing too to keep in mind is that um, uh, you know. For, for, I mean, for example, where Paul says in Galatians, there's now neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. I mean, it is all there. Everything within the Christian message was there to explode culturally to address all of these issues. You also have the New Testament letter Philemon, where it's all about a runaway slave. And the whole point is Paul saying, hey, accept this slave back. He is now a brother in Christ. He's no longer a slave, but a brother in Christ. I mean, it was all there. And that was, you know, obviously part of the New Testament canon being read by the Christians. But it's also very important to understand historically that slavery during that time was not like slavery was that in the American uh, context. And what often happens is, is that people will read about all things related to slavery in the first century through the lens of the American experience and the American expression of slavery, which was obviously horrific. I'm not saying that first century slavery wasn't, uh, was, wasn't bad, but it wasn't the same as American slavery. It was often entered into willfully and purposefully as as form of indentured servitude. It was often something that people did for a season and they could leave it for a season. It was a financial decision or they did it because it was a way of getting education for certain classes. It was also started largely in Rome um, uh, through uh, prisoners of war and, and criminals. And it was like, um, you know, it was almost seen as being benevolent. You know, instead of killing you, we're going to allow you to be a slave. And so it was almost seen as an act of mercy in early on. And so there's a, just a different lens to, to look at it through. But um, again, um, and there was also another layer, which is that uh, the early church and Jesus knew that um, it was more important at that point to be, to be spreading the gospel and letting the church operate and grow freely without even more persecution that was there to being shut down entirely. And, and yet, well, we're going to be cultural subversives when it comes to slavery and women and, it, you know, slavery and, and that's not going to happen in the church. And we're going to liberate slaves and we're going to liberate women and leadership and everything else. In fact, Philemon went on to be a pastor of a church. Um, tradition has it. So we're going to be cultural subversives, but we're going to be street smart about it and pick our battles because we want to keep telling people about Jesus. And so you even find Jesus doing that. He would pull away from the crowds when they wanted to make him king by force and do something political. And he said, no, no, that's that's not my agenda. That's not my timing. It's not time to reveal that. Um, so there's all of these dynamics before you just kind of put Paul or Jesus in the dock on some of these social issues. Yeah, because what's really unique about the Christian worldview is that a couple of things, but really that this world is not all that there is. You know, So we have that to kind of keep um, in mind. And then also that things are going to get worse before they get better. So um, there's also that kind of have in our back in, uh, of our mind that this isn't, we don't need to put all of our eggs in the basket of this world necessarily, but that's not to say that, oh, because things are going to get worse, you know, that we just 
we'll just do what we do in the church and then let the rest of the world just basically ruin itself. Like that's not the posture that we're supposed to have either. I think like in kind of more recent history or American history, more recent, at least in the Bible, like a really good example, I think of someone who did this winsomely with those in mind would be, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, the way that he um, engaged social change, but from a Christian perspective, what what do you think we could take from him? From his yeah, let, me, let me address that uh, in just a second. Let me go yeah. back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, and then I'll go right into Dr. King. Yeah. Um, the uh, when, when, when we're looking at, at, at uh, going after culture, uh, there's been two approaches, and this is again very simplistic, but it 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 makes a point. And one perspective is let's let's make it a Christian nation. Let's legislate everything. Let's fight all the culture wars. Let's fight every fight. Let's do all that stuff. And you know, if if there's slavery, let's eliminate slavery. If there's if there's you know women aren't being treated, let's do that. Let's get rid of whatever. And so we make it a Christian nation, and we're going to do it through the political process. Then the other. So I would say, well, how about we just work on it making, I mean, yes, I mean, let's vote our conscience and do that, but uh, why don't we make it a nation of Christians, not just a Christian nation, but a nation of Christians, and really reach people for Christ. So instead of a top-down approach, it's more of an organic bottom-up, and the more we are a nation of Christians, the more we will be a Christian nation through laws and legislation. So, I mean, you kind of can look at it through those two lenses as a possibility, um, but uh, to to your point about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., um, yes, that was, it, it was a it is a good example I, in my mind. It's a good example of moral biblical campaign against racial discrimination and segregation, and uh, and it was a peaceful, nonviolent protest, which I think is important as well for Christians. But and and yet and King did root it in a, in a Christian worldview. He rooted it in 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 deeply Christian values. If if people have not read his letter from a Birmingham jail, they they really should. Um, it's, it's a it's a masterful thing to read. And in it, he talks about laws. There are laws that are just and there are laws that are unjust. And and he says, and the way you know a law is just or unjust is whether it accords with God's law. You know, if it's in accord with God's law, then it's just. If it's out, it's out of sync with God's law, then it's unjust. And he then moved on from that. And he said, segregation is unjust because it does not reflect God's law that we are all one and, and equal in his eyes. And so he made his whole case, many people, uh, many people don't know this, but he made his whole case based on a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. He, no other basis would have allowed King to have made those kinds of statements about what a just and an unjust law is. And so clearly saying segregation is unjust because it does not accord with God's law, which is larger than man's law. And he was able to say that because man's law is, you know, it's not the final word, God's law is. So I can, through my Christian worldview, and my belief in God's law and transcendence, I can call this man-made law into account and say it's unjust. Mm. And why that Christian worldview is so key, because I think that some people could also be like, well, yeah, I mean, or racism is just bad. And so we could just, you know, on that basis alone. But I think that where the Christian worldview really comes in is like, can you define why it's bad? And can you define what the what the real vision on the wall is? And right. I think that that's missing in so many of these conversations, especially as of late, is um, we may be at the same, you know, rally as somebody else, but with a very different vision in mind informed by a Christian worldview. Right, right. I agree. So if we're going to evaluate kind of right now where Christians are in terms of our relationship with the morality of at least Western, let's say American government, how would you delineate the areas of congruence and then incongruence? Let me see if I can get at that by 
talking about tolerance. Hmm. Um, that's a big buzzword right now. Tolerance, being intolerant, and it's being thrown around a lot, accusationally and such. Let me kind of use it as a framework of also where we have congruence and we have incongruence. Because there's actually three types of tolerance. There's not just tolerance. There's got to be more sophisticated than that. There's three. First, there is um, social tolerance. Social tolerance is when, um, you know, I may disagree with you, you may disagree with me, but I, I can still be uh, kind and courteous to you. We can still have relationship. You can still come over, you know, and watch the game with me this weekend and we can be friends. And I'm, I'm going to be socially tolerant. Okay. Then there is legal tolerance, which is your right to believe what you want to believe and to hold to what you want to hold to. And there's everything about the Christian faith would affirm that both social tolerance and legal tolerance. You know, you're, the freedom for you to think and believe and to have the freedom to come to your own conclusions. Uh, it's a deeply biblical idea. You know, even God saying, come let us reason together um, and giving us that freedom. Um, and then also, if there was anyone who was uh, socially more socially tolerant than Jesus or socially accepting, I don't know who it would be. It was, it was called a friend of sinners so much, and they meant it as a term of derision. So there's complete acceptance, full-throated support of social and legal tolerance in scripture, and there is full-throated acceptance of that in our culture, social and legal tolerance. Okay, so that's where we share common ground. Where we don't share common ground is when it comes to intellectual tolerance, the third of the three. Intellectual tolerance is saying that every idea is equally valid. Every idea is equally sound. Every idea and thought is equally true. Um, and that's where Christians draw the line. Uh, saying no, I, I, you know, I, I don't agree with that. Um, there is, there is truth and there's lie. There's, there's falsehood. There's, there's right. There's wrong, um, and uh, we believe that there is objective truth out there. And so, uh, to give an example of these three coming into tension, uh, this is again maybe a little bit of a comical one, but let's just play with it. Let's just say that uh, you believe it's best to put sand in the gas tank of your car. You think that's the way to get optimal performance. I can socially, you know, say, well, you know, I'll still be your friend, you know, and, and that doesn't change that. And legally, hey, it's your car, put sand in it all you want. But intellectually, I can say, I think you're a fool and I think you're wrong. And I don't think that's the way, I mean, I say fool, that sounded like I was taken away from my social stuff. But I mean, I can say, I don't think that's the best way to run your car. I don't think that's optimal. I don't think that's the way cars work. And, you know, you know, I, you know, again, we'll, we'll talk about it over the game and you're right to do it, but. I, I feel like it's wrong, and I, I feel like I can say that it's wrong for me, and I don't think it's best for your car. So that's where Christians draw the line, intellectual tolerance. And, um, and so uh, what that means is, is that though we're living in a day where that is considered to be something that is the case, that you know that's just your truth or my truth, or we're making up truth as we go along. It's very individualistic. Um, we, we, when we say tolerance, we're including intellectual tolerance along with it, and uh, there's just no foundation for it. And so that's where Christians uh, separate, and there's a lack of congruence with the way things are being thought about and done today. Now, I might, I might be a cynic here, so excuse me if that's, this is where it's coming from, but do you feel, though, that perhaps Christians are not receiving that same value of tolerance, at least from contemporary culture, that it's not so much of you can believe whatever you want to believe, but really like 
especially with leg- some legislation as of late, like, but you need to affirm the way that I'm living. You need to, it's not okay that you believe the things that you want to believe. You need to believe what contemporary society is believing. Are you saying that Christians are saying that or non-Christians? Non-Christians are. Like yeah, yeah, I do I do yeah. think there's hypocrisy there. Uh, I, and I, I think that um, it's, it's so interesting that, um, and again, I, I'm not trying to make this all about I mean, I mean, but it's, it's, it's the cultural elephant in the room. So let's talk about the LGBTQ movement and agenda. It's like early on, it was just, hey, we just want the right. We just want the freedom to, to, to be gay and to have a gay lifestyle and, to, um, and even to, to marry. Or we just, we just, you know, just want to be treated like everybody else. That's all we want. Um, that's proven not to be true. The agenda, once all that was achieved, the agenda was now we want to penalize anyone who says that our lifestyle is wrong. We want to make it legislated where it's hate speech. We want to make, if you say anything, if you even say, hey, the Bible says this isn't best, we want to label that hate speech Mm -hmm. and we want you prosecuted. Uh, We're going to make it so that you have to do things that affirm our ceremonies or involve yourself in our marriages. And, 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 you know, you've, you've got to, to, to do these things. You've got, you don't have freedom to disagree with anything or to disapprove. And so they are, uh, everything that they kind of use to make their case, they're now, uh, you know, using, disavowing and using to be hostile toward Christians or anyone who would critique their worldview. And so um, even the recent Don't Say Gay law in Florida, which we've had a podcast on, mm-hmm. again, it, it was like, um, no, you don't have the right to protect your child. You don't have the right to be the gatekeeper for your child. You don't have the right. Uh, and so if you're saying that a third grader or a second grader can't be uh, you know, open to our agenda, then you're bad. You're a terrible parent. So it's, it's really gotten toxic. I just think it's kind of like a healthy kind of nuance to point out because it, it it's, I think it's going to become more and more evident um, in years to come. And I think we're going to find ourselves um, in that position on a whole you know score of issues, um, not even just this one. So um, I agree well, with yeah. you. I, th- I think it's going to, I think it's going to get much, much worse because there is across the board, and it's not just LGBTQ across the board. There is this growing sense where um, I will, I, we will not allow culture to be critiqued we joke about the cancel culture but the cancel culture is real and it's starting to have teeth and it's starting to enter into laws and it is a sense where um i you know you will not have the right you won't have the freedom you won't have the ability to to speak out on these things and the last bastion for that is going to be the christian church and um and there's already movement to do things like whether you agree with this or not, but there's already movement to strip it. Of, if, if you if you give a sermon against homosexuality or gay marriage, then we will take your tax exempt status. We'll do this. We'll do that. In other words, we'll be we'll, and that's that's mild retaliation. Mm-hmm. Wait till it gets intense mm-hmm. to silence. The church. So for our Christians who are listening and like their blood is boiling, you know, their passions are, are engaged. They're thinking, no, like we can, we can forge a new way. You know, like I can, we can, I can make a change. I can be a part of, of um, new types of legislation, or I can make a difference systemically, or I can do something, you know, how, how would you, I guess, counsel someone in terms of, okay, if you really do, if, you know, we're called to be salt and light, is the answer legislation of Christian morality, or is it something else? Like how much should we be inserting ourselves into these, into legislative battles? 
we need Christians in politics. We do. We need we need Christians in the in the White House and in Congress and 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 local state governments. We need Christians there because of what you just said, salt and light. And again, um, and I, I've said this before, and I'll continue saying it. We need to understand what it is we're saying. We're talking about salt and light. Salt was not uh, in when when as a biblical metaphor in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus used it, was not for seasoning or taste. It was a a preservative and you would take a piece of meat for example that you couldn't eat right away and you would rub salt into it and as a result that would help to um uh, keep the meat from putrefying and so uh and then light uh was meant to was for proclamation where you're bringing to bear so you had something that was kind of a negative agent and a positive agent so when jesus said be salt and light what he was saying was you be such a presence in culture that you keep it from decaying. You keep it from putrefying. You keep it from going bad. You're like, you're being rubbed into this culture as salt to keep it from going bad. And then you're bringing light to bear, truth to bear as well. And so we have uh, a responsibility to do just that, to keep culture from decaying further. And that obviously is not simply politics. It's the entertainment industry. It's the judicial system. It's the educational system. It's 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 all the epicenters of culture where Christians need to be taking up posts and, and living Christianly and thinking Christianly and acting Christianly. And yes, this includes voting Christianly. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not like we're talking about the moral majority uh, and with its often misguided efforts where it demonized people and was unloving and unkind and and really basically embraced much of the worst of power and and made politics everything and and, and almost had this top-down approach of a Christian nation as opposed to a nation of Christians. But um, having said all that, I mean, we better get out there and be involved in culture. We better be involved. We better vote. We better do these things because if we don't, I mean, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And again, we don't uh, create laws to penalize people, but we do uh, support laws that uphold um, Christian uh, values because we obviously believe that's best for our culture and best for our families and best for our freedoms. And so um, when people say, you know, Christian politics, yeah, is it well, so, so should it just be pagans in politics? I mean, I mean, we, we, we're, we're to be involved and engaged. We're just not supposed to reduce our faith to politics. And as a result, get rid of our ethics and do whatever it takes to reach political ends. That's bad. And in that sense, I think um, we have seen that recently where Christians just for the access of, to power or Christians would, would kind of overlook all kinds of things that Christians shouldn't overlook for political purposes. And that's shameful too. But it seems like I really like that distinction you made between a Christian nation and nation of Christians uh, as to the role that, I don't know, just the power, even perhaps greater than any legislation that we could pass of just Christians into, like being salt and light to other people, the church being who she was meant to be, and that there's so much more power there, I think, than legislation is ever going to accomplish for us, or that that's where it needs, the change needs to start at least. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. And, um, and, you know, uh, and even just just think about, um, you know, all things related to to gay marriage and how a Christian should engage or interact or, or respond to that, you know, should we should we vote? Should we get involved in legislation and all these kinds of questions? The answer is, well, of course, 
I mean, we should have voted against that as Christians because how could you vote for it? And upholding, you know, a biblical understanding of marriage and and in our culture, we would consider that to be us trying to be salt and light and a positive thing, not trying to be hurtful or punitive toward people, but just to say that's not a definition of marriage. That's not what marriage is. And 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 that was really the issue for for Christians in thinking about gay marriage. If culture wants to elevate gay marriage or or turn gay marriage, I mean, uh, and 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 to the level of a civil union and give it give it that kind of legal stamp of approval, so be it. But as Christians, we say just don't call it marriage because it's not it's not biblical marriage. It's not it's not mat- holy matrimony. If you want to have civil unions between men and women, same sex just don't call it marriage and don't ask us to call it marriage uh, as a faith because to us it's not uh, what we have to resist is either taking a civil union and elevating it to the status of biblical marriage or um, the opposite is where you would take um, uh, either elevate civil union to biblical marriage or denigrate biblical marriage down to a civil union mm-hmm. um, for us it's more it's it's holy matrimony it's it's something different it's sacred it's 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 a it's something that involves God and it's a spiritual union and it's, and it's a, and so it's, it's different. And so we look at it differently that way. And we think about it differently that way. And so um, again, that's part of just kind of thinking things through where is this, are you asking us to really redefine aspects of our faith and where are you just wanting to put this into our culture and, and, you know, but we don't have to, you know, it's your deal. So um, and I and I think that leads to what the the real key fight is going to be in the in the future, Lexus. And 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 I I I fear this for my children and my grandchildren. I don't know how much of it I'll see in my day and my years left. But um, I, I do believe that the next real wave of of issues. I mean, if if people say stuff like gay marriage and all that, I say you know I say whoa whoa whoa, that's done that's over. That's, they've won. I say they, you know, that, that agenda has won. Um, and even further, quit calling us a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation anymore. We're post-Christian. If we were ever a Christian nation in that sense, the way people talk about it. And I've, I've, I've done series on this. Um, the real issue is going to be religious freedom mm. and on how long that holds out or where, where I can as a Christian, where we as a church, where I as a pastor can proclaim biblical truth and not be uh, persecuted, penalized, criminalized, called hate speech? How long can we raise our children in our homes the way we want to without, um, and teaching them our Judeo-Christian values, uh, teaching them certain aspects of right and wrong without someone saying, okay, you don't have the right to do that because that's child abuse. You're, you're, you're keeping your child, you're teaching your child hate, you're teaching your child whatever, and that's used to take a child from a home. And if people think I'm being alarmist, uh, you need to read more. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is out there. This is already out there. And, and again, if people who are, who are still kind of thinking that um, uh, in terms of where our culture is going in terms of morals, um, I mean, there's, there's actual serious conversations in academic settings about the legitimacy of, pedoph- of, of, of pederasty, of young boys and men having sex and being in that kind of a relationship as if somehow that's not harmful. I mean, people don't realize where our culture, how fast it's going in a particular direction. And so I, I 
I mean, yes, let's be salt and light and let's keep you know winning as many people as we can for Jesus. But when in terms of the legislation front, um, I think the next big battle is for our right to even proclaim biblical truth in this culture and maintain it in our homes and maintain it in our churches. This is kind of a somber note to end on, but, uh, I, but I think at the same time, like you're right, like we need to stop um, being delusional about kind of where we are, or where things might be heading, just thinking that, oh, it's just, it's just going to be fine, right? You know, things are just going to get better. Or we can somehow in our own strength overcome, um, you know, what, <laughs> what might be ahead of us. But I do think that there's also, you know, as, as I know you would agree, just that keeping the back of our mind of just, yeah, how much then, how much more so then is knowing you know, what God is all about, the character of God, you know, knowing what we should be fighting for so much more, all, all the more important as we move forward and knowing too, that we have a God on our side, who's so much greater than um, anything that we're going to come up, up across or up against. Um, but that we need to do, we, we need to know what God is all about. If we're going to know how to um, address these issues moving forward. And so Gosh, this has been great. I wish we could talk for another half hour about this, but um, but we'll, I'm sure we'll tackle some of these issues in a future podcast. So um, for those of you listening or watching, I hope this was helpful for you. I hope it was challenging. And um, I hope that you'll join us again next week for another great um, thought-provoking um, conversation. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this week's installment of the Church and Culture Podcast with Dr. James White. We hope it was not only informative, but challenging and the start to an ongoing conversation. To stay up to date with all the latest, check out the daily headline news and subscribe to the Church and Culture blog, all found at churchandculture.org. You can even keep up with Jim by following him on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at James Emery White. We hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye for now.